this time. Thank you for singing with us. Thank you, kids, for amening us through the whole bit of it. I appreciate it so much. And listen, just to remind, I know we hadn't been in this building for a while, but if you need the restroom, it's through that side door over there. I just want to make that clear. We don't ever say that, and it's kind of hidden. But listen, I'm so excited for us to be here today. I feel like today's a really cool day. Today we get an opportunity to start a new series, a summer series called When You Pray. When You Pray. And what we're going to be walking through is we're going to be walking through the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. You know, I think the the most important thing that we need in this time of uncertainty and and strife and, and just difficulty and injustice, whatever may be going on, that... The greatest thing we can do and the greatest tool that is underutilized by us is our prayer and the moments that we seek the Lord in our day-to-day life. And I think we're going to learn a lot of great things from this study over the next five weeks. I think God has some really cool stuff for us. And so I want to read the prayer, and we're going to read it together every week. And uh, I want to challenge you, my kiddos, I want to challenge you guys to memorize this, okay? I memorized it as a kid. Uh, It was taught to me by my parents, which I am so thankful for. I want to encourage you guys, parents, kids, to memorize it. Make it a challenge week to week. Regardless of what uh, version you're using, I'm going to be using ESV, but you can learn it in any version that you use at home. Um, But I want us to read this together. I want us to take this in. These are the words of Jesus that are speaking in this text today. So I want us to hear this together. Let's read together. It'll only be the first verse on the screen. I forgot to put the whole thing on the screen, but we'll read it out of the text together. Uh, Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. He says, then pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Father God, I pray this morning that we would open our hearts and minds to what you have for us. God, challenge us, convict us, reveal to us the truths of what we see here this morning. Father, we love you. We thank you that you are so good. God, we thank you that you are the source of all good, that you're the source of all love, that you're the source of all justice, you're the source of all grace, you're the source of all mercy. Father God, let us constantly be led to you. God, let us depend on you in this moment. Let us seek you for everything you have for us. Father, we love you, thank you, and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is probably one of the most well-known texts in in the New Testament. Uh, We see this in Matthew 6 and Luke 11. And, um, you know, I have really great memories of this verse, you know, because I can remember night after night, uh, my parents leaning into my time, you know, this, this personal quiet time and praying this prayer with me. You know, it was a very important part of the, uh, of the denomination that I grew up in. It's a very important part of their liturgy where they say it weekly. And, um, and you know, this is just a prayer that got just ingrained in my head. And, uh, and I quote it a little different than the ESV because of the way I learned it was not in the ESV version. But, you know, the truths of that text just really just have stuck with me through my life. And they're so vital and so important to me. And, you know, and I think because, you know, if you played sports, then you probably said this prayer with your coaches or with your players, this type of thing. And so we utilize this prayer so much that, unfortunately, like anything that we use and use and use, I believe we've maybe lost touch 
a little bit of what this is truly communicating and what Jesus is really saying to the people in this moment. And so, you know, first off, before we even get into where we're going to be this morning, we have to kind of communicate what is prayer. Uh, you know, and we'll just spend a second on this, but prayer is the one of the most essential things that we do as a Christian. It is a gift that God has given us, uh, this open line of communication. And I think Martin Luther said it best when he says it like this. He says, a Christian without prayer is just as impossible as a living person without a pulse. The pulse is never motionless. It moves, it beats constantly, whether one is asleep or something else has distracted him from being aware of it. The thing that we have to understand is that prayer is more than words. You know, 1 Thessalonians tells us to pray without ceasing. So I don't know about you, but if, if, even for me, I'll talk for 25, 30 minutes, and uh, that's tough to talk for that m- much time straight. So obviously, when Paul is writing in 1 Thessalonians, that he's not telling us that we constantly pray, speak out loud in prayer constantly without ceasing. So what we know is that prayer is so much more than just words we say or words that we think. Prayer is a posture. I truly believe that prayer is a posture of living. It's a way that we seek God. It's a way that we depend on God. You know, as later on in Matthew 6, he would say, seeking first the kingdom of God and his his righteousness and all things shall be added to you. So it's this sense of dependence. It's this sense of, uh, of respect that we offer to God and the sense of seeking God and all that he has. You know, and, uh, and, and I love that, that even before this, you know, Jesus would say, listen, it's not about the, the weight of your prayer, uh, the, the length of your prayers. It's not about how fancy the words are of your prayers. He says, but it's about the weightiness of it. You could say one word in a prayer and it'd be more weighty than a thousand words spoken out loud. He said, it's not a show. He said, it's this connection between you and the Lord when you're leaning into what he has for you. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, Christians, Christians prayers are measured by weight and not by length. Many of the most prevailing prayers have been as short as they were strong. Our prayer is about that connection and that seeking of the Lord. And so there's two things this morning that I want us to see in regards to where we're going to be at this morning. We're going to focus specifically on Matthew 6, verse 9 this morning. Matthew 6, verse 9. And we're going to see two things about who God is and why who God is depends and it shapes how we pray. I think it's why the Lord's Prayer starts out framing up who God is. It wants us to understand who God is so that it... it, it, it kind of propels everything else that follows behind this. And so these are the first, this is the first line of the text in verse nine. He says, pray then like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And so there's two things that we see in this text. We see the nurturing nature of God and we see the the characteristic nature of God. We see his nurture and we see his nature. Okay. And so then the first thing we see God's nurture, the very action of what God does for his people. And we see that in the first two words of this text. He says, our father. You know, father was not a word that the Jews would have normally used to describe the, who God was because they felt it was too intimate. They felt like it didn't respect God for his holiness. It, they felt like it didn't respect God for his glory and his honor. You know, uh, he was called many things. He was called Yahweh. Well, then they stopped calling him that. He was called Jehovah. Then they stopped calling him that. They started to call him Adonai, which is kind of a less intimate word. And it was just kind of a general word that they would use to communicate the name of God. And, And what Jesus is doing here is he's acknowledging him as father, which is what is meant to do in this moment is it's meant to communicate to us and to acknowledge, make clear a relational position between us and God. 
It's meant to communicate a relational position between us and God. Because a lot of times we think of God as this distant being. We think of God as this high and mighty king, which he is. Absolutely he is. The sovereign ruler of the universe. But what he wants to do here, what Jesus is doing, is he's, he's helping us understand by calling God Father. And this word Father being a very different word that, than was used for Father in the Old Testament. But he's communicating this word Father to express and to illustrate a relationship we have all known. A relationship we have all felt from the beginning of our lives. You know, John would even say that see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, so we are. And so he's helping us to see that there is a, there is a, a way that God acts towards us, this nurturing effect that God does toward us that is different than maybe how he was framed up in the Old Testament, or different than what their understanding was. He's always been the same, but they've missed it. You know, uh, in, in the Old Testament presented the idea of God of being father very few times. You know, but like I said, the Jews thought of it as irreverent. And, but through Jesus, as Jesus is communicating this, the New Testament perfects the idea of father. As the Old Testament b- revealed the idea of God being father, the New Testament perfected the idea of, of God being father and brings it to the full revelation where g- God is called father in the New Testament 196 times, where in the Old Testament he is only called father 14 times because the fullness of it is revealed through Jesus and that Jesus is showing us that God is the Father. And so what does this mean for Christians, that God is Father? This is where it gets, we need to pay attention. In Jesus, God's relationship to us as Father is deepened in its understanding, that it's expanded, that it's made more personal, that it's made more individual through Christ. And what we see, what he's showing us, is that what we are finding in God is a perfect kingship, a perfect kingship because a father uh, a, a, a father is not like a king in a sense that you know a king all he is about is his kingdom a king all he is about is what uh, expands his kingdom a king is all he's about is what can grow his kingdom what can uh, shift those things and so what bringing the fatherly uh, nurturing aspect of that into it does is it helps us understand that this is not a king who intends to subdue us, that force his subjects into something against their nature to oppress them. We do not serve just a king, but we serve a father whose intention is to bring love and to, to, uh, to provide for his children, to preserve his creation, to create, to, to give to us. And so that's the kind of king that we serve. And not only that, but we serve a king who is a father who also invites us in boldness to approach him invites us in boldness to approach him you know and we see that in the bible as the bible communicates that but also not only that that we serve a king who offers us who creates for us provides for us and preserves for us who shows gives us boldness to pray and to seek him but also a father who disciplines, a father who directs. Proverbs 3, 11 through 12, it says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him who he, whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. You know, and so the reality is, as we view God not only as king, but do, as we view God as father, you know, as we view him as not only a, a, a heavenly being, but also as an imminent 
personal God who is, who is leaning into our lives individually. But we also understand in the midst of that, as Father, his intentions are to direct and to discipline us. And the reality for us is, do we see him as that way? Do we accept that discipline? Do we invite that discipline? Do we invite that direction? You know, and I, C.S. Lewis said this, and I thought it was such an accurate representation of how we view God sometimes. He says, we want not so much a father, but a grandfather in heaven. A God who said of anything we happen to like doing, what does it matter so as long as they are contented or as long as they are happy? You know, we want a God, we want to believe in a God that says, whatever you're doing, as long as you're happy doing it, then I'm okay with it. But that is not the God we serve. We serve a God who is a father who disciplines us, who leans into our life when we are doing things that are wrong, when we are living in rebellion, we are working against him, when we are not following the statutes and commands he's laid before us. Our God, as father, seeks to discipline us. He seeks to discipline us. He seeks to redirect us. And we need to be a people inviting that and accepting that and being thankful for that. Not hoping and wanting to view God as a grandfather. I mean, we know grandparents, right? They think their, their grandkids do no wrong. You know, there, there's nothing you do wrong. Everything you do is right. You, you, uh, everything you do, you're the very best at it. And, and that's all that matters, you know. But, and we're thankful for that. But we, we should be more thankful that our Father in heaven is not like that. Because if that were so, if we were left to our own happiness to contend for our own contentment, we would find ourselves in sin. We would find ourselves stepping out into places that do not provide for us, that do not preserve us, and do not create for us. And then not only the fact that he is a father to us, but I love that the first word of that is he says he's our father. He's our father, not excluding a personal prayer of my father, but reminding us the communal aspect of our prayer. That as a Christian, that we are in a family unit, that there is that familial connection, that we have a father in heaven. And because we have a father, there are his children, his sons and daughters that that we dwell as, that we function as, that we live as. You know, Galatians 3.26, he says, for in Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. Galatians 4.6, he says, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit uh, of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. 2 Corinthians 6.18, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be a son and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. The prayer of God, seeking God, is a prayer that is social, that is focused on community, that, that when we lean into prayer, when we lean into God, that we be reminded that not only are we not alone because God is with us, but we are not alone because we function in a community of believers that are here and that should be considering each other, should be praying for each other, should be seeking the, the betterment for each other. You know, that the right to use God's name to pray isn't limited to me or a privilege reserved for me, but shared by with others in God's family and reminds us that we're not alone. Our Father, the communal aspect of our prayer, that we are in this together. And not only is he our Father, but I love that he says that he is our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. Why is that significant? Why is it significant that he is our Father in heaven? Because first off, what I believe Jesus is doing here is he's contrasting him with the fathers on earth. You know, as much as our fathers are vital to our lives, they are imperfect. I know I'm imperfect. Even damaging to your life, maybe at times, if you've had that experience in your life. Maybe disappointing Maybe it's reshaped your view of father, and so to think of God as father uh, negatively affects that. 
But the thing that we have to remember is that because God is our Father in heaven, the greatest quality of our earthly fathers are magnified infinitely more in our heavenly Father. God as Father is not of this world. And so what that means, because God is our Father in heaven, that God is not corrupt, that God is not pity, that God is not needy, that God is not uh, uh, begrudging against us, that God is not angry in a sense where, you know, I, I had to explain to one of my kids yesterday. I said, look, when I get upset with you, I'm over it. Like, we deal with it. We move beyond it. You know, I think too often, especially when we've lived a life that maybe we've had some sin in our life, we have this vision in our mind that God is just angry at me and he's looking down at me from heaven and he's saying, oh, well, you've just, you've just messed up. You've done too much wrong. You've just made too many mistakes. I'm still mad at you. I haven't forgiven you yet. That's not the God we serve. We serve a God in heaven that is not petty like we are. We serve a God in heaven that is not needy or corrupt like we are. And not only that, but secondly, that we can be reminded that he is our heavenly father and in his heavenly fatherhood reminds us that he is eternal and that he is a creator. And that in him, Luke 137, for nothing is, will be impossible with God. Psalm 124, 8, our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. That our God is mighty. That our God is a warrior. That our God is, is, is infinite. That our God is eternal. That our God is self-existent. That he depends on nothing and depends on nobody. And that's the father that we serve. And through this, it is leading us into his holiness and his glory and his power and dominion. And the last thing this morning is that we'll see God's nature. That we'll see God's nature in the fact that in verse uh, 9, it says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. And so what does this mean? This word hallowed be uh, your name is, is, is to mean the word hallowed to be holy or set apart or worthy of praise, celebration, giving honor. This is a sense of giving honor to the name of God, that he understanding and believing that he is the standard of truth, that he is the standard of love, that he is the standard of morality, and that separate from God, there is no morality. You want to have an argument with an atheist or an agnostic, ask them why they think it's okay or not okay to hurt hurt someone or to kill someone or to take a life unjustly. They'll say, because it's wrong. Well, then you're responsible. Well, why is it wrong? Why do you believe it's wrong? There has to be some source of morality that has told you that this is wrong. God is the source of morality. And whether we acknowledge it or not, he is the driving force behind everything that we do. He's the driving force behind why we think the way we think. He's the driving force behind why we would ever do anything good and why we would choose to not do something bad on whatever scale that is. God is the source of all things. And because that, hallowed be holy, exalted be your name. And this is important because in our teaching and in our living, we, are, we should be attributing the proper uh, perception of God and honor he deserves. And when it starts with our view of God that shapes our response to God. Our view of God will shape our response to God, how we live, how we come into this place and worship. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is, do we see God as holy? Do we see God as eternal? Do we see God as the deity that we say week after week that he is? Do we truly believe that in our hearts? Do we believe that God is the very source of morality? Do we believe that God is the source of truth? Do we believe that God is the very essence and source of love? that any true love exemplified in our world is only possible because of the source of love being God. Do we really believe that? 
Because until we believe that, the, our view of God will not be shaped. We will not see God as the Father that he truly is until we can see God as holy. We will not see God as the God he truly is until we can see that God is sovereign and that God is unchanging and that God is all-powerful and that God is ever-present. You know, God is not driven by need or dependence, but God is self-sufficient. God is. He is the I am. And because he is self-sufficient, what is so beautiful about this is the fact that he chooses to give, to function as our father, reveals the nature of his love and mercy toward his creation, that he has adopted us, as Romans 8 would say, and that because he has adopted us, we can cry out to him, Abba, Father, which is a very intimate term of fatherhood. And in that, we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, that we get to enjoy the blessings and benefits of what God has given to Christ when we have put our faith in him. Even though God needs nothing from us, he continues to give to us. He provides us through his holy nature, fatherly nurture. God is giving to us, granting us his holiness, his righteousness, heirs to the inheritance meant for Jesus. This becomes ours when we are in Christ. And we are in Christ when we trust in Christ and put our faith in him. So why does this matter? Why does it matter and, and how do we properly view this idea of God being father? The thing we need to remember is that in the incarnation, when Jesus came down to earth, putting on flesh, putting on broken flesh, he became like the image bearers he created. No other God has ever done that or been claimed to have done that. You know, we were broken signs, reflections distorting a view of God based on our nature and the lies that we have accepted. And the beautiful thing about our God is that rather than discarding us because we were broken, God showed his glory and constraint, and he called us to point back to him, father to his creation. That he's not simply a creator, but he's a fatherly creator. You know, God has done something that no other creator would ever do. You know, if, 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 if there was a broken iPad, Steve Jobs would get rid of it. Truett Cathy, he's the, uh, the founder of Chick-fil-A. If there was a spoiled chicken sandwich, he's getting rid of it. He ain't putting that out there for somebody to eat. Because it would be a bad representation of him, right? A carpenter would not keep a damaged piece of wood to build a house because it would be a poor representation of his work. Do you understand? No creator, in the sense of the, the limitations of our creations, no creator would do what our creator has done. No creator would take its broken things, its broken creation, and still choose to use it, still choose to, to utilize it, to uh, attribute value to it, and in the sense of God to us, become like us, become broken like us, to bear our very brokenness, to be a representation of brokenness in himself when his body is beaten, when he's bleeding, when he's, when he's broken, when he dies on the cross, that he is wearing our brokenness, choosing to be broken with us. That is the Father, the Creator, God that we serve. You know, I was, uh, during this time, and maybe you've fallen into this too, during this time of quarantine, one of the things that has been big is this home projects, right? 
a lot of home projects, a lot of activities, a lot of things you're figuring out, learning some things. You know, when trends, these trends come and go, one of the, the things that obviously is popular right now is taking something that is worn, used, old, even damaged, and putting it to use. You know, and I saw someone recently selling some reclaimed weathered wood. Reclaimed weathered wood. You know, in that even in its condition, and it, they were selling it for a hefty price. You know, what was amazing about that is that even in its condition, it still, still carried value. You know, in that this individual, these people, people that would step into this space, they would see to use it to be reclaimed, or another word for reclaimed is rescued, that it is weathered, meaning that it's old or seasoned or used or exposed to elements. And the thing about something like this is that it's not for everyone. You have to have a specific vision to use something that is reclaimed, to use something that is weathered, to use something that is, in some people's vision and eyes, broken and unusable. Church, we serve a God that sees us and reclaims us. That God sees the weathered nature of our lives. God sees that we've been exposed to the elements, that we've been used, that we've been abused, that we've been seasoned. And in Luke 15, 20, I think we see one of the most beautiful examples of God as Father in the entire Bible. As this father's son left, taking his inheritance, going out, blowing it, living in the slums, coming back broken and battered, believing that his father would never forgive him. Luke 15, verse 20, it says, And he rose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. What this father saw is this father saw a weathered soul. What this father saw is a, a, a soul that had been exposed to the elements, broken, beaten, and by most people's eyes, by even his own brother's eyes, was worth nothing, was not worthy of your time, was not worthy of your love, was not worthy of your giving. But what did the father do? It says that the father saw him, first off. The father, in seeing him, felt compassion towards him, and through feeling compassion towards him, ran to him and embraced him. This is the father that we serve that sees and, and reclaims us, that rescues us, that even in our weathered nature gives to us and, and attributes value and use to us in your families, in your workplaces, in our communities. God sees value and use for us, even in our weathered state. You know, and the thing about these weathered boards is as they've been weathered, they actually build up a harder exterior. And you know what? Maybe God has allowed some of us in here to go through things that have weathered us, that have broken us, that have just maybe even changed the way that we look or act. But through that action that God has allowed us to do, God has built us up even stronger to do something new, to still have a purpose, to still have value. And that's what God has attributed to us today. Church, as I finish up, I just want us to know this and be reminded of this as we finish. That God is Father. God is Father reminds us of his love. 
that even at the best that our earthly fathers can do, God's love is infinitely more. That God as Father reminds us of, of the immediate access we have to him. That he is not a distant God. He is not a distant Father. That he is an imminent, present God in this place with us this morning. That God as Father reminds us of our security. Reminds us of our resources. Reminds us of our worth. That God as Father reminds us of our need to obey. I don't know about you. And not that our Father functions in this way. But it was a lot harder for me to know that my father was disappointed in me rather than to be disciplined. I can take discipline, but I don't want him to be disappointed. That drove the reason why I would do things the way I would do things. That's, that's the reason why I just try to do, do right and be good is because I didn't want to disappoint. You know, we can, we, can, we can navigate a lot of discipline. But church, let's live life as if we, we don't want to disappoint. We want to live. You've shown me love. God, the least I can do is live my life for your honor and your glory. Remind us of his discipline. Remind us of his need, our need to obey. Because God is Father, remind us that we are in a Christian family. Church, we are in this together. And listen, we're not a part of this family because any of you passed any test to get into here. None of you passed any test to be able to come week after week and say, I, I, I belong to Cross Point Community Church. I go to Cross Point Community Church. You're not a part of this Christian family because you give money. You're not a part of this Christian family because you're uber talented. You're a part of this Christian family because we leaned into Jesus Christ together and say that we need him as our father. And not only that we were reminded about our Christian family, but it reminds us of, our, of the power and sovereignty of a holy God that is beckoning us away from our sin, that is beckoning us, beckoning us away from our selfishness into bigger and better things for us as individuals, for our families, for our friends, for our local church, and for the church universal. God is beckoning us to greater things. And we can have confidence in that because our God is powerful, our God is sovereign, and our God is good. Church, let's pray together this morning. Father God, I thank you for your goodness. God, I thank you that we can boldly proclaim you as Father this morning. God, I'm thankful that we can confidently rest in your goodness. God, I, I, I thank you, and I hope that we would know that any of us who believe in you and have called you Father here this morning, that we can know that you've looked at us and you've responded to us the way the, the father of the prodigal son did. That you saw us in our brokenness. That you reclaimed us or you rescued us. You felt compassion for us. You ran and embraced us. God, and that you intend to reveal that compassion and love for us in the way that you lead us through our lives. God, as we begin to walk through this prayer, God, let our prayer begin with understanding who you are, that you are a good father, a holy, righteous father, powerful, warrior, mighty father who stands with us, that goes before us, and that, God, our faith in you has forgiven us of our sins, past, present, and future. God, let us rest in the confidence of that, God. Let us put our faith in you if we haven't yet, God. Let us begin to truly understand and embrace who you are as Holy Father. God, because you are holy and you are good. God, we love you this morning. God, I just ask you to continue to bless our church and everything we do. 
God, lead, guide, and direct our people into your good work. God, we love you and thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.